Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno, riding solo as my lovely co-host Jacob Solis is off this week. On this week's episode, I talk with environmental reporter Daniel Rothberg about a Nevada Supreme Court case that has broad implications for water rights in the state. After that, intern Kristen Leonard talks with Lieutenant Governor Kate Marshall about Nevada's Complete Count Committee, which encourages communities that are considered hard to count to participate in the 2020 census. At the end of the show, reporter Michelle Rundells and I talk about IndieFest and what to expect from our big online event. But before we get to the rest of our show, I sat down with Indy's health reporter, Megan Messerly, to talk about the newest numbers and latest developments regarding the coronavirus. Megan, thanks for joining me this morning. I know it's a bit of a shift since Jacob is normally the one talking to you. It's all good. Happy to be here. <laughs> good morning. Yes. Um, we don't get to see each other on Friday mornings normally, but uh, it is Friday morning, September 25th. And Jacob usually does these numbers with you, but I'm going to be doing them. So, you know, just what are the numbers looking like right now? Right. So we're sitting a little bit above 77,000 coronavirus cases since the beginning of the pandemic here in Nevada. Uh, We're at time of recording. We're at 77,344 cases. We're also a little bit below 1,600 deaths, so uh, 1,565 deaths this morning. And we're a little bit above 70,000 recoveries, so 70,383 recoveries. So looking at those numbers, you know, we've been talking a lot about this in, in segments on this podcast, we saw week over week decreases in cases and hospitalizations, uh, which showed a little bit of stabilization after the spikes that we saw this summer as, as coronavirus cases surged. Last week, we talked a little bit about there being a little bit of a plateau, but now this week, we're starting to see a little bit of an increase in cases. State health officials are primarily attributing that to uh, Labor Day weekend gatherings. They're saying that we're starting to see some of the results of that. We're waiting to see exactly where this trend goes moving forward. You know, is this just a little blip and cases are going to go back down afterwards? Or is this the start of another, you know, increase again? I know the hospital association is monitoring these numbers quite closely. They mentioned they put out these daily reports and in their daily report from Thursday, they noted that we have seen these sort of two-week plateaus in hospitalization numbers. And after that, we have started to see an increase again in hospitalizations. We have not seen an increase yet in hospitalizations but it looks like they're keeping an eye uh, waiting for that to come, you know, as we're starting to see cases increase. But again, we still don't know, is this, you know, another, another wave, another surge of cases? Is this just a small trend? We really need a little bit more data to see where this really is going to be going. So with flu season approaching and hospitals seeming to have, you know, a little bit more stable since they come out of this hectic summer, what are we expecting to see with this flu season and then the fall and the winter? Yeah, so there are a couple different theories about this. So one of them is obviously folks are concerned about the coming flu season. Uh, Flu season already puts a lot of pressure on our hospitals, you know, as people come in with complications related to the flu. There's been some concern, okay, what if we now have to treat flu on top of COVID? You know, we have to treat flu patients, we have to treat COVID patients, and then people can actually have the flu and COVID at the same time. So you could be treating some dual flu COVID patients. Uh, And what does that look like for, for the hospital infrastructure. And I know hospitals are concerned if, you know, they see the demand that they normally would in flu season, plus the demand they've seen with COVID, that would be an extremely difficult situation for hospitals. 
On the other hand, folks that are a little bit more optimistic, you know, look at the situation and say, hey, we're encouraging masks and social distancing now. People are, you know, sort of hopefully being better than ever, being more vigilant, uh, taking these measures not to get COVID. And maybe those measures will also help prevent the spread of flu to some extent. So there's some, you know, degree of optimism that maybe the, the strategies that we've all adopted for COVID will mitigate the flu season. I mean, we're still going to have the flu, right? And COVID is still going to be around. So it's still an unknown exactly what that looks like. But there is some hope that maybe, you know, flu won't be as bad this year because we are being a little bit more cautious all around. At the same time, you know, hospitals, medical providers are urging people, you know, get your get your flu shot. You know, they're already they're already doing, you know, flu flu shot drive-throughs and things of that nature, encouraging folks to get the flu shot early. We don't have a COVID vaccine, but we have this flu vaccine every year, varying degrees of effectiveness depending on sort of the strains that end up circulating. But you know, if we can even mitigate just some of the flu spreading in the community, that will go a long way toward you know reducing flu spread and then reduce the the strain on the hospitals possibly this this fall and winter. Alrighty, well, if you'd like to read more about the coronavirus or any of the other topics that we cover, you can check out our website, thenevadaindependent.com, uh, where you can also find Megan's weekly coronavirus contextualized stories. Uh, Megan, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Happy to be here. Welcome to the first segment of the podcast. I'm Joey Lovato up here in Reno, and I am joined by Daniel Rothberg, also up here in Reno. How's it going, Daniel? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. You know, there's this, there's in this big Nevada, Nevada Supreme Court decision that happened involving water rights, and you've been writing a lot about it over the past couple of weeks. Let's just kind of get right into it. You know, what is going on with water rights in Nevada, and why is this Supreme Court decision such a big deal? I guess to take a step back, the Supreme Court decision was made after the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals on the federal level asked the Supreme Court a question. And the question they asked is, what fundamental responsibility does the state have as a sovereign government to protect natural resources for future generations under a legal doctrine that is known as the public trust doctrine? The question is extremely relevant in states across the West, including Nevada, because a lot of rivers and aquifers are over-allocated, meaning there are more rights to water, to use water and take water, than there actually is water available. Which means, as water is diverted from streams, less of it makes it to lakes in sort of the final the final area, there's big effects on wildlife and fish and spawning and recreation opportunities, all things that are considered public trust values or values that the state is responsible for protecting for future generations. But the court was looking at this, the, the question that was referred down from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals was related to litigation involving Walker Lake, where as I was talking about before, our diversions in this specific case have made the lake recede, have changed the lake chemistry, have basically made it increasingly inhospitable for wildlife and challenging for recreational opportunities. So Mineral County, the county where the lake is located, filed in the 90s a public trust claim saying you need to do something about this. You need to ensure that a minimum amount of water is making it to the lake every year. 
And you need to do that under the the public trust doctrine, under the, the state's fundamental responsibility to protect natural resources for future generations. So that claim in the 90s worked its way through a federal court, made it to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals said, well, before we answer that question, we have to ask the, the Nevada Supreme Court how the public trust doctrine should be interpreted in the context of Nevada law. So... There's a Walker River, which ends in the Walker Lake, which is outside of Hawthorne, starts in California, goes through Nevada. As it's going through Nevada, farmers and, and other people are, are taking water out of the river, which is thus leading to less water getting into the lake, which is making it less hospitable. Correct. Okay. And so now we're at this lawsuit. Yeah. So as I mentioned in the 90s, the Ninth Circuit asked the Nevada Supreme Court to answer the question what is the state's responsibility? How does that actually play out in the day-to-day kind of enforcement of the law? So the Nevada Supreme Court answered this question on very narrow grounds. In fact, they rewrote the question that the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals had referred to them. And instead of answering sort of the whole scope of the public trust doctrine, they looked at whether or not the public trust doctrine would allow the state to reshuffle or reallocate water rights in the area. They found two things. One, they found that the public trust doctrine exists in Nevada. There is a clear prerogative for the state to protect natural resources for future generations. That they said is clear. And in fact, they even expanded the interpretation somewhat. So that's significant. However, they said that the state cannot fulfill its public trust obligations by reallocating water rights. What the ruling means for Walker Lake is still an open question. The federal court, it goes back to the federal court, and the federal court now has to interpret Walker Lake's public trust claim under the guidance provided by the Nevada Supreme Court. So litigants in the case, Mineral County and Walker Lake Working Group, the the advocates for ensuring a minimum amount of water makes it to the lake are saying the case the case was actually decided on very narrow grounds all the supreme court said was that you can't reallocate water rights to meet the obligations that the state has to protect natural resources for future generations but the court did not rule out the possibility of other types of relief and mineral county was not necessarily asking for reallocation They were asking for an acknowledgement that the public trust doctrine necessitates a certain amount of water makes it to the lake. So there are other types of relief that are possible. For example, farmers and ranchers in the basin could pursue efficiency measures so they use less water. There are different types of management tools with how water is stored. The state could come up with a plan for restoring Walker Lake. And in fact, there is in some sense already a plan in place because there is the Walker Basin Conservancy which purchases properties and then converts the water into in-stream flows that flow down into the lake. So, like, why should people in Nevada, like, care about this, right? Obviously, if you're around Walker Lake, there's there's some significant impact this is having. But if, you know, the rest of the state, obviously it has broader impacts because it's reached the Supreme Court. So what is that looking like? So I think... I think that's where the the discussion is really interesting because you have the Supreme Court basically saying, we understand that there is an issue at Walker Lake. We understand environmental damage has has been done, but we also are not going to upend our system of allocation 
and water rights to correct that issue. It's interesting because, you know, lawyers will distinguish between what are legal holdings and discussions and an opinion. So some of the discussion from the majority opinion and the dissent are not necessarily legal holdings that are enforceable per se. What the majority says is that the public trust doctrine is already recognized in statutory law. The legislature has already recognized it because every time Nevada's water regulators decide to appropriate a right, they're they're required to consider the public interest. Now, what the dissent says is, well, that's not quite right. The public trust doctrine exists as this larger, more fundamental aspect of the state's sort of sovereign powers. And it exists side by side with the statutory system of water rights that we have. And it should be balanced against that system. So I think the the larger point is that this is going to continue to be a question in Nevada water law. It's going to probably continue to be litigated. And one day it might come to the Nevada Supreme Court again. It, it seems like it's a little bit of a catch-22, right? Because they say that you can't change the appropriation for these water, but they also have a legal need to protect the water. They can't change it, but they also need to protect it. And that's where I think there's going to be some question as to how this moves forward, because while it says that you can't reallocate water, there are existing tools that the state has that are in Nevada water law, those statutes that the court leans on, that allow Nevada water regulators and allow the state to restrict the use of water. And so it will be interesting to see if the public trust doctrine is incorporated in terms of how water is restricted for the environment and for the sustainability of the resource, the river or the stream or the groundwater aquifer. All right, cool. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for breaking that down. I know there's a lot going on kind of with water laws and Supreme Court. And hopefully we can get some more interesting reporting and some more interesting insight onto how all of this works. I know it's uh, pretty complicated. It is really important for Nevada, a state with maybe not as much water as others. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks so much, Joey. All right, and so we are going to move into the next segment with Kristen Leonard talking to Lieutenant Governor Kate Marshall. But before we do that, there was kind of some change in the census and what they're talking about, you know, right before right before we put out this podcast. So I'm here with Michelle Rendell's reporter extraordinaire and assistant editor to help me kind of explain what's going on with the census. Michelle, how's it going? It's good, Joey. Yeah, so last night, uh, we're recording this on a Friday And it was basically Thursday night that a ruling came out. It changed kind of the situation from when Kristen was talking with the lieutenant governor last weekend. This is a judge, a federal judge in California, that ruled that the census deadline needs to be pushed back uh, to October 31st. Now, there were a lot of folks in Nevada that were really trying to do this last minute push to get people counted basically this week um, because it was supposed to end on September 30th. But really, the problem is that the judge said many states have not reached the goals that they set for themselves on getting people counted. And the judge is asking, why are we trying to rush the process if a lot of people are not done? You know, on the other side, the government is saying they're trying to wind down census efforts and the moving deadline is causing them some problems. You know, we heard that in in Kristen's interview. You'll probably hear that in a few moments that they're trying to kind of 
phase people out and there's only, uh, you know, a dozen or so counters here in Nevada uh, a week ahead of the the original deadline. And it's kind of hard to ramp back up again. But at the same time, you know, counting people is very important for the ultimate funding of the state. Yeah. And, and so the, the National Urban League and, and, and other groups like the city of Los Angeles were the ones that kind of sued to get this deadline extended. So now they have an extra month. How much that's going to change, you know, it's kind of hard to say. Kristen was asking the lieutenant governor about that. And we'll, we'll hear more from that soon. I think Nevada has more counter than they had in the last census. I think it really vary by, varies by county. Some counties um, have done better than they did in 2010 and others haven't. So I think, you know, the goal is just to really exceed the 2010 count as much as possible because, you know, each person counted is something like $20,000 in federal funding that's attached to that. So you don't want to underestimate the population of a state because you will not have enough money to uh, fulfill the needs of all your people in the state. All right. Well, I guess we'll uh, jump into the interview between Lieutenant Governor Kate Marshall and intern Kristen Leonard. So this is about five days old at this point. So there is a little bit of outdated information just because the September 31st deadline has moved to October 31st. Joey, there's no 31st September. 30th of September. (laughs) First, we should talk about just the outreach events this weekend. So if you wanted to get into a little bit of where you went, who you've been speaking with, and what your overall goals were for the weekend. Yeah, so first I should mention that this was really a collaborative effort. Um, basically we had a complete count committee meeting and we asked the people on the count committee to pull together that we needed to do this outreach in these last, I think we have 10 days now, you know, Mm -hmm. so Sandra Howdigy, Selena Torres, Edgar Flores, Olivia Diaz, Make It Work, Mi Familia Vota, NSC, they all came out and that really is what made the difference was the community coming together. And we went to East Las Vegas where the count at the last I checked was 29.4% had self-responded. And if you think about it, so we went to Cartagena's Market, uh, a couple of them. We got the Census Bureau to have uh, census takers there. And then the volunteers really wrote people in. And while I was there, so I went to two places, we probably pulled in over a million dollars because for every person who completes the census, it's 20,000 over 10 years. Like we use this term now, we have these essential workers, okay? But go past that term. If, If those people weren't here, there would be no strip. It really bothered me when um, at the special session, one of the people testified, made this comment that these corporations are what make Nevada work. And I'm just going to fundamentally disagree with that because it is the people that make Nevada work. It is the people who are cleaning hotel rooms, serving people, manning the hospitality areas, right? It is them that make Nevada work. And a lot of those people live in East Las Vegas and have lived there for generations. And they need to be counted because they count. They make us count. And so when you have people who work two and three jobs, when you have people who are working on the weekend and trying to run into the store to get those last groceries, they're not sitting at home going, oh yeah, my census. So you have to reach out to them because they matter to us. For our education, for our healthcare, for our roads, 
That's why we did this. And I am so grateful to the people who came out. Yeah, like you said, Matt, September 30th deadline. At this point, do you think there's any chance of that deadline being extended? Well, we had the court case, right? And I don't know what's happening there. But I will tell you that's my impression that the Census Bureau is winding down. We learned yesterday that there are only about 12, uh, approximately 12 census takers in the entire state of Nevada right now. So even if they extend it, they would have to ramp back up. And it's not that they are, one of the things that frustrates me is, and, and I want to caveat this by saying that the people I have met who work for the Census Bureau are pretty amazing people, very committed, and I greatly appreciate their efforts. But the, the Census Bureau, it's not that they're stopping September 30th, they have been stopping, right? They have been withdrawing resources. Our main contact for the Census Bureau has already been thanked for his service. And so they've already been winding down, which makes it that much more difficult. So one of the reasons that I called for the push this weekend is because, quite frankly, if we in the state of Nevada had not called for that, it wouldn't have happened. And so talking about the response rate in East Las Vegas specifically, where you've been doing your outreach, how does that compare to the rest of the city of Las Vegas and to Clark County's response rate overall? Yeah, so basically what you have is uh, where you have more affluence. People are more um, aware. And they also have the luxury, right? So those of us who can work from home have the luxury to go to 2020census.gov or to pick up the phone or to fill out the form. Those of us who don't have that luxury and are working two to three jobs and maybe one of those jobs went away and maybe one of those jobs uh, is less, maybe your spouse is out of work, you don't have that luxury. So it's not that you don't realize it's important, but I like to say that, you know, in the Constitution, when it says life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that those are in order. And so the first being life, that would be food and shelter, right? And so they have to worry about those things first. And also, quite frankly, there has been a lot of politicalization of this process. And so I called, I think I reached all the mayors over the last week or so in our state to chat with them about what they might be able to do this weekend, what they might be able to do in these last 10 days. And I heard from quite a number of them that they're having a really difficult time getting, reaching out to the Latino community because there is such concern about what is going to happen with the census. And when you have the president of the United States making a lot of political statements with respect to the census, that distorts the process. And that's unfortunate. It's unfortunate for Nevada because we are a net exporter of federal tax dollars. And we really can't, given how fast we're growing, meet the needs of our population today based on a count from 2010. The response rates are looking different in rural counties. Can you talk a little bit about some of the issues that you faced in getting responses there? So in a lot of rural counties, people have P.O. boxes. And so what that means is a census form will not go to a P.O. box. So if it, let's say I live on a ranch and I have a P.O. box and you sent out the census form, the government sent the census form, it would come back. And then what that tells the government, the U.S. government, the Census Bureau, is that they have to deliver a form. 
And so if you are strained for resources in terms of your field operation, you're going to have a harder time delivering those census forms. And so, for example, I talked to the mayor in West Wendover, Mayor Corona. He received his census packet. Some of his neighbors did not. Uh, we've heard anecdotally, and so I can't confirm, that Lovelock, Carlin, Fort McDermott, Wells have all called and said we're not getting forms. In Esmeralda, I don't, I, I mean, as far as I can tell, the majority of people in Esmeralda are, have not responded to the census. There are similar needs. We don't think about this, but the people in East Las Vegas need healthcare, education, infrastructure. The people in Esmeralda need healthcare, education, infrastructure. Okay, the, the very people who don't have the time uh, to focus on things outside of food and shelter are the very people we need to be counted so that we can help lift this state. You're not going to diversify this state if you don't give people an opportunity who are the people making this state work. And so the limitations on field operations, is that something you think would have been happening in Nevada even without the pandemic? Or do you think that's a direct result of limited resources because of the pandemic? I think the pandemic compounds it. I, but I, I can only tell you what I've heard. I don't have firsthand knowledge. I've heard that there was much more field and activity in 2010, but I, I don't have firsthand knowledge of that. What are you going to be focusing on to really increase that response rate in rural counties? What plans do you have in place? So like I said, I called every one of the mayors and, and literally did, I said, talk to me, talk me through your zip codes and I'll tell you where you are based on the last information I have. And some of them were shocked, right? And I said, so what are you doing? And so some of the mayors, these are the things they have talked to me about. They've told me that they have a, an ability to text everyone in the community or to send them kind of a ping notice. And so they're going to do that. They're going to mention it at their city council. Uh, a number of mayors have radio shows a couple times a week, and they're going to put it there. I made a video for Clark County School District for their kids in government and social studies. And uh, a number of the mayors asked if I would send it to them. And I encourage them to make their own video to get that out to kids so that the kids can go home to their parents and say, we really, you know, don't forget about the census, right? Some people are looking into whether or not they can use the, the 911 emergency notice feature. So that's some of the things that I think will, you'll see happening around the state to encourage people to fill out the census. So, you know, the same thing for rural. Can you talk about the issues that you've been facing there and how you're planning to address them in the coming days? Yeah, so the Census Bureau has said from September 22nd to 24th, they are going to uh, be counting the transient population. My concern has been that in 2010, I believe the count was 1,700. And then I think it was really by a magnitude larger than that, as you know. So interestingly enough, yesterday at one of the markets, we had some people who had, you know, their belongings in the grocery cart, and they came out to fill out the census. I was so grateful to them that they would spend the time to do that. So basically, the nonprofits in the community have um, organized with the Census Bureau what time and date 
um, they will be dropping by that location. And so then they are connecting with the population that they serve to try and encourage them to be there at that time to be counted. And so it will, they'll move from location to location and they're organized with the nonprofits about where they're going to be at what time. And so can you talk about what exactly is going to be happening September 22nd to the 24th? What are, what are those operations going to look like? Well, all I know is that the Census Bureau is coordinating with the nonprofits to be at their various locations to take account at that time. They had asked us to, if, if we could go to where homeless people, kind of where they set up their tent cities and things. And I had some concerns about us not having the expertise because a lot of people who are in that situation have mental health issues. And if they don't know you, they are rightfully wary, right? Because they're exposed and vulnerable. And so then I think the Census Bureau is really focused on working with the nonprofits. And I think that's a better way to go. They have said that they themselves will not be heading out to those locations where you might see people having uh, kind of set themselves up. Uh, So they're really working with the nonprofits that serve those communities. And I think that's the appropriate way to um, try to count people. And then the other thing is that we, what we don't think about is it's also people that live in transient hotels or transient places that they might rent on a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. And so we have made sure that our, our demographer, Jeff Hardcastle has made sure that they have all the addresses of those places and know how many units are in those places so that they can coordinate with those entities to, to count the populations that live there. All right, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk to me. All right, and so we are at the last segment of the podcast, and Michelle, we just were chatting before Kristen and Lieutenant Governor were chatting, and now we're chatting again, and this time we are once again promoting IndieFest, which is coming up next weekend. Yeah, Joey, people really need to uh, get their tickets and uh, mark their calendars for Saturday, October 3rd, because that is the big day, um, an all-day extravaganza, really, of newsmakers and, you know, people with great insight onto where the state of Nevada is going and where this election is going to be going. So it's just really something that you don't want to miss. Yeah, we've got tons of panels. I think we have seven panels and then we have some one-on-one interviews. So, you know, I think the we've had one small change in our uh, legislative panel. We, we re- it was not, not re- we didn't replace, but <laughs> Ben Kiefer is no longer on it. And it's, he's, it's now uh, Tom Roberts, Assemblyman Tom Roberts. Both of whom have been excellent guests on our podcast in the past. That's right. They're both fantastic podcast guests, and I'm sure they'll be fantastic panelists. What are you most looking forward to on IndieFest? I am looking forward to, well, I'm, I'm very excited for the Rove and Axelrod panel at the, with John, you know, talking to some some pretty big wigs out there in Washington. But I, I'm also excited to hear from all of the former governors. That's just something I'm very curious to see what they have to say. Uh, so we've got former Governor Robert List, Richard Bryan, Bob Miller, and Brian Sandoval. And so, you know, I think just kind of hearing, you know, how they what they've seen in Nevada and how they've seen it change is going to be a really, really interesting panel. It's not something that we you hear a lot, you know, in any state. What about you, Michelle? What are you most excited to watch? Well, I'm excited to have this lengthy interview involving Governor Sisolak and John, because really it's been bef- 
since very early in his term that we had a long sit-down interview with John and the governor, and it always yields a lot of interesting nuggets. So I think that might, that'll be fun, but it might uh, force us reporters to write some stories because there might be some news made, so... Well, I know we've never worked on a Saturday before, so that's going to be a pain, but... (laughs) That's your new MO, Joey. That's right. All right, Michelle, thank you so much for doing a little promo with me. And if you want to get your IndieFest tickets, you can go to our website, thenevadaindependent.com. There's an IndieFest 2020 button on the top. General admission is $130. If you're a student or a teacher, it's $30. And if you want a discount on the ticket, down to, I think it's $70, right, Michelle? Something like that. 70 it's either 70 or 80 dollars you can become an indie member which helps us you know keep doing what we're doing every day and also gives you a nice discount on a ticket to watch some really great panels so michelle thanks for uh, chatting with me great Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Kate Marshall, Kristen Leonard, Daniel Rothberg, Megan Messerly, and Michelle Rendells for being on the show this week. If you like listening to the podcast, consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. If you have comments, questions, or just want to tell me what a good job I'm doing without my lovely co-host Jacob Solis, you can email me at joey at theenvyindie.com. Our theme song was written and performed by Reno band People With Bodies, and you can find more of their music on Spotify or Bandcamp. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. My co-host, Jacob Solis, will be back next week when we'll have more wonderful stories to share with you regarding Nevada politics, policy, business, and more. Thanks for listening and talk to you next week. Moby wants to be on the podcast. Moby. <laughs> That'll be the end of the podcast. Moby will have a little cameo. Excellent. Thanks.